Hi, everyone. This is Ralph ben and I have a new show here on CIUT. It's called The New Sabbath Project, and we'd love you to join us for conversations about all things related to culture, citizenship, community, spirituality, and <gasps> religion. The New Sabbath Project here on CIUT 89.5, Sundays at 2 p.m. Urbane Cyclist specializes in urban active transportation. Check out our custom bikes built in-house, from fixies to touring in comfortable commuters, as well as great brands like Opus and KHS. Already have a bike? Our services and parts department is there for you. Just call us and make an appointment. Students get 10% off parts and accessories. Urbane Cyclist is a worker cooperative. 180 John Street, downtown Toronto. Located steps away from College Subway Station, Magic Lantern Carlton Cinema offers $7 tickets to students for every movie, every showtime. Check carltoncinema.ca for showtimes. The evolution continues. CIUT 89.5, Toronto. Live from the Hard House Map Room Studio at the University of Toronto, this is the Keenan Wire Radio Program for Wednesday, July 24th. We're live on the air on 89.5 FM in Toronto and worldwide at CIUT.FM on the web. Later today or tomorrow, you can download a podcast of this program at thegridto.com. Today on the show, new streetcars and a new subway, Stacey May Fowles on women baseball fans, Dylan Reed on Little Parks and Parking Spaces, plus John Michael McGrath and Desmond Cole to talk about the news and more over the next hour. During the show, you can tweet us your comments at CIUT on Twitter or email them to CIUT at gmail.com. Thanks for listening in. So it's, uh, you know, the end of July almost, and I am on vacation from my uh, regular job. The sun is shining, and everything is shiny and new. We have a uh, new pictures of Anthony Weiner's Weiner, the New York mayoral candidate and former congressman. Uh, you know, I got nothing to say about that. We got also a shiny new royal baby. A future king of Canada is born. I got nothing to say about that either. Uh, but uh, we do have also... Shiny new streetcars in Toronto, uh, LRV vehicles. Uh, they've been testing them at night for a while, and yesterday they went on their first daylight ride. Some members of the press went along, and you can see uh, pictures and accounts of that journey in all the daily newspapers and uh, on your televisions. And you can hear about them on the radio. They are bigger and better than the old streetcars. Uh, they hold more people. They offer a smoother ride. They certainly are longer, uh, but, you know, they'll be rolling them out, I guess, next year on the Spadina line. They uh, they started out on Bathurst yesterday for their daylight ride. And I'm really happy that we have these new streetcars. I love the sort of the design and the... Uh, the aesthetics of the old streetcar, but it, you know, I'm I'm ready to move on, and I'm glad that we've ordered these. As controversial as the price tag on that order has been, 
Uh, it's time to move forward, and these are, by all accounts, top-notch technology that will serve the city well and make uh, streetcar travel more accessible because uh, the floors are low to the ground, which means the people that wheelchairs, people in wheelchairs are able to get onto them. But there is a bit of a problem. There's always a but, right? Is that these streetcars, uh, we're ordering fewer of them than, we, uh, than the streetcars they're replacing. Uh, on Spadina, when they roll them out, I think of uh, the... Let's see. During rush hour, it'll be an average of uh, two minutes longer that you wait for the streetcar. And I think this is a problem. Viewed from a certain point of view inside the TTC, it's not that big a problem because you've got more capacity. They're bigger streetcars. More people can fit on them. So you can carry more people on fewer streetcars or the same number of people, let's say, on fewer streetcars, which is what the TTC's uh, projections show. And if what you're focused on is how much it costs to run that line, how many drivers you have to pay, uh, how, many, how much electricity it takes to run the vehicles, then that's great because you can do more with less. You carry the same number of people, but there are, uh, you know, there's less cost involved. But if you're a rider waiting for the streetcar, if you're somebody who actually uses transit to travel in this city, then what we're talking about actually is that you have to wait longer for a streetcar to come. And when it comes, it's just as crowded as it's always been. And that actually is not an improvement. The TTC has been obsessing for a long time, and we've been obsessing with customer service on the TTC, on, um, on you know, how to make the TTC a more convenient, a more comfortable, a better way for people to travel. And yet this is exactly the wrong mindset to accomplish those goals. Uh, some of the things that make traveling on the TTC better are if you don't have to wait very long for a vehicle. That's, that's actually, I think, one of the key reasons why people love subways is because even, even at late, late at night, they schedule them to come more frequently than every 10 minutes. You might wait two minutes for a subway. You might wait eight minutes at the, at the most off-peak times. Uh, whereas, you know, on streetcar lines and bus lines, you know, some of those bus lines out in Scarborough and North Etobicoke, during off-peak hours, you wait, you wait 20 minutes, half an hour. Uh, and that, that makes your trip suck, right? Yeah, first of all, you have to consult a uh, uh, schedule to see when the next vehicle is coming and time your arrival at the stop to its arrival. And heaven forbid this, that bus runs one minute early. I, I have had the experience, even, even where I live in the junction, of trying to take the Annette bus on a weekend and seeing that it arrives every 20 minutes or half an hour according to the schedule, checking the schedule, getting down there with two or three minutes to spare, and then waiting 30 minutes, 40 minutes for that bus to come, and it never comes. So that's, that's a significant problem, wait times in general. And then also, you know, do you have a chance of getting a seat, or uh, can you stand comfortably uh, or do you have to sort of cram up with everybody else? It's, it's a significant problem now, even on the Young and Dundas subway, even on the Bloor Danforth subway. The train comes in, and it's so full that you can't really get in. Uh, that is also a problem on some of our surface routes at some times of the day, uh, and it will continue to be a problem as long as the TTC operates routes by, by thinking that it's better to be able to carry more people on on fewer vehicles, right? 
that's no way to attract riders, and it's actually no way to make the city a better place to get around. And so I think we do need to be talking, as we have been talking, about investing in new routes, in new vehicles, in new technology, updating the system. But one of the key goals that we always have to keep in mind when we're running public transit is that it should be reliable, it should be quick, it should be convenient, and it should be comfortable, as comfortable as is reasonably possible. And I'm not sure that we're doing that. I mean, even as we've been talking about new revenue tools to build new transit, even as we've been having a debate about whether we should build a new LRT line or a new subway line, we've been cutting the service on some bus lines to meet our operating budget targets. And that's actually not a very encouraging sign that we're investing in the experience of TTC riders. And I think that's something that we need to talk about more, and I hope it's something that we will be talking about more as we go forward. I mean, this sort of same principle of trying to envision not just what the new vehicle is going to look like, but trying to envision what it's going to feel like, what your experience is going to be like when you ride it, was at the front of my mind last week. You know, I've been talking about this for weeks, but when we talk about the proposed LRT route to replace the Scarborough RT versus the proposed, the now-approved but not funded subway line, the extension of the Bluer Danforth line. Uh, one of the big things that I was thinking about during that debate, and one of the key um, factors for me, is that that subway line is only going to have three, that subway extension is only going to have three stops on it. There's one at, you know, so Kennedy Station is at Kennedy and Eglinton. They're planning to put a stop, uh, you know, it's probably a 45-minute walk away at Lawrence and McCowan. And then another stop at the Scarborough Town Center, and then one up at Shepherd and McCowan. And, and that means that, it, that the subway stations, the new stations, are still going to be uh, a tremendous distance from a lot of the people who will ride on them, which will mean that they have to ride, take a long bus ride, to get to the new subway station. Uh, the new LRT line was by no means perfect, but it had seven stops on it, and it was a little bit longer. And there were going to be more people, many, many more people, within walking distance of an LRT stop. And that, to me, is one of the sort of key elements of really good transit, that you can walk to a vehicle that will then move quickly. So, you know, if the new subway line from its terminal point at McCowan and Shepherd to, to get to Kennedy is going to be five minutes faster than the similar LRT trip would be, most of that speed difference is actually in the number of stops because the RT, the, the rapid, the light rail, was going to stop uh, seven times, you know, and the, the new subways are only going to stop three times. But even with that, e even if you just discount that, the fact is um, for most people traveling on it, the five-minute difference in the subway travel time is going to be more than made up with when they have to take a 10-minute or 15-minute bus ride to get to the station instead of walking to it. That, again, it's like you can't just focus on are we getting a fast vehicle, are we getting a nice vehicle. You have to, you have to think about what's your whole trip going to be like if you're a commuter. If you live at Brimley and Lawrence or if you live at, uh, at Markham and Eglinton and you need to um, travel downtown or if you need to travel to the Scarborough Town Center, what's the trip like from your front door to your destination? 
Anyhow, I don't want to talk too much more about LRTs and subways in Scarborough. Uh, if the decision is made and if the funding comes through, then I think we're going to go forward with the plan we have, the plan that Council has approved for better or for worse, and we're going to build it. If the funding doesn't come through, and it's a big question now for the federal government because the city has a little bit of money in, the province has its same $1.4 billion in, we still need, you know, probably about a billion dollars from the federal government. And so far, they've committed diddly squat. Uh, you know, there was a provision in the uh, the motions that got passed approving this Scarborough subway extension saying that, you know, the, the, the federal government was going to have until the fall to come up with this funding. Otherwise, we're going to revert back to the other plan, which I think just means we're going to have a huge debate about this um, in the fall. I'd rather not have another huge debate about it. But, you know, if we do, uh, I would be very comfortable if we go back to the LRT plan, which I think makes transit more comfortable for more people. If we don't and the funding does come through, then I will be happy to see that extension built if it is ever built. Anyway, and while we're talking about new streetcars on the Spadina line, it's obvious uh, a music selection to take a break is uh, Shuffle Demon's classic about public transit on the Spadina line. It's Spadina Bus. Get on. 
That's the Shuffle Demons with Spadina Boss. They will be playing this weekend at the Beaches Jazz Festival on Saturday, I think, at 2 p.m. at Kew Gardens, but you can check online to see the uh, the exact timing. I'll probably uh, check out... I love the Beaches Jazz Festival. My kids love it in particular because you just wander around and there's a band playing every 10 feet on the street. So... You can check that out this weekend. In the meantime, uh, you know, you can almost always check out a Blue Jays game. Everybody was very excited about this team this season because they were going to be winners. And that didn't uh, work out as well as hoped. But uh, they still have managed to win some new fans. A story in The Globe reported on a survey the Jays conducted uh, that showed that they had attracted a bunch of new fans and that, wow, 50% of them, or 50% of those attending games at the Skydome are women. However, uh, uh, let's see, Globe and Mail reporter Tom Maloney went out to investigate, and he found uh, some women celebrating a bachelorette party, uh, and some others, one of them said, uh, it's like a concert, Uh, you know, I'm not sure we're watching the game, actually, to be clear, it's the best patio in the city, though, the best people watching in the city, you know, somebody else uh, said that, you know, there were a lot of hot guys on the team. And that's a reason to watch. Um, novelist and writer Stacy May Fowles, who is a lifelong baseball fan, uh, took to the pages of the National Post to respond. She's on the phone with me now. Are you there, Stacy? I am here. How are you doing today? I have to correct you there. It was actually with the walrus that I... I oh, it was with, on the walrus. I am sorry. Not a I'm problem. I'm sorry. Um, but I... <laughs> but, so, um, so, you know, I, first off, I, I think we can stipulate that some of the Blue Jays are hot. Well, yes, of course. Yeah, Jose Bautista was in the uh, score without, you know, I, I like that uniform. But but that's not the pr- – I, 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 Skydome, it's fair to say, doesn't offer actually the best viewing of players. Um, well, yes, no, yeah. that's true. And, I mean, I think it's fair to say that people are hot. So that's, yes. that's going to be sort of a part of anything that we do. Yeah, um, exactly. And I think my problem was sort of the focus on the fact that, you know, it's this very heteronormative view that women only go to see men – play sports um, because men, you know, it, it's a butt thing. It's, they, they look sexy. We're lusting after them. Right. And um, we can't possibly understand how the game works. And that's, that's a, a widespread assumption, I guess. Well, yeah, and, I, you know, I, I'd encounter that quite a bit. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, I, I can only speak sort of anecdotally with, you know, people who, who like the game who are women. Um, but they say they come up against it quite a bit when they're, you know, people make assumptions about why they go, and it's to drink and people watch and lust after players. Now, for, first of all, in, in your piece in the Walrus, you you are on the Walrus website. You mentioned, um, you, you know, that you've been going since you were a small child yes. to watch the Blue Jays, and yes. so you, can you? Do you, you're a fan, I think it's yes. fair to say, <laughs> and you appreciate the game, right? I do indeed, yes. But uh, but your experience is not just this piece in the Globe and Mail, and as you say, a widespread assumption. It's it's something you experience when you actually go to the game. Is that you're you're treated differently by the other fans? Yeah, um, I I think that I think that there's probably an environment, you know, in most environments that women enter into um, that are sort of male spaces. Um, you're very aware of it, and there's sort of an aggression and a hostility that you know male fans might not pick up on. Um, some do for sure, but you know others, you know, may not see it. And I think some of the criticisms of the piece I wrote were people who just didn't didn't have that personal experience. Um, I was at a game a couple of days ago, and a guy, you know, leaned into a row and heavily aggressively hit on these women in front of me. 
um, and just, you know, was in their space, was leaning over them. And, you know, you could say that's just, you know, somebody trying to pick up, but you don't necessarily go to a baseball game with the assumption that people are going to, you know, aggressively, sexually hit on you. Um, so that might not be something that male fans see or understand. Right. Now, I mean, the thing is, too, that, um, that it, you know, it, it may be a blind spot in the piece or it may just have been out of its purview, but it seems to me, from my experience, that a lot of people go to uh, Blue Jays games, and I'm not necessarily talking about women or even mostly talking about women, uh, and they, they're not that interested in watching the game. They're much more interested in drinking and having a good time, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a bachelorette party. Um, and so those aggressively, mostly male fans who are just having a party... Uh, to me, often often just strike me as just annoying. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, they they they're predatory, abusive, or un un uncommonly interested in the the women fans. It, it, I mean, it makes the, the the space uncomfortable for sure. Right. Um, and you know, part of what I say in the piece is that you sort of learn to navigate the stadium in such a way where you know where you can sit. Um, for example, I didn't go on Canada Day because I, I knew that it would be a very aggressive atmosphere. I tend not to go on Fridays because it tends to be more more sort of aggressive in that way. Um, I don't in any way think there's anything wrong with going to a baseball game and chatting. Um, part of the reason why people love the game is that um, you're not discouraged from interacting with the people that you're with. It's a slow game. I'm not going to deny it. <laughs> right. um, and there is there is a very social atmosphere to it. And, and part of the beauty of the game is interacting with other fans. Um, I just think that um, when you create sort of a hostile atmosphere, that excludes other fans. Um, so, you know, don't get me wrong. I have no problem with people not paying attention. I think that's, you know, that's part of the game. Right. Um, I think that it's <laughs> when you you sort of not pay attention and then ignore that there are other people around you who may be uncomfortable that becomes the problem. I was I was going to, uh, you know, and searching for a devil's advocate position, I was going to bring up the plight of poor men who are fans of women's beach volleyball, but then I thought, oh, wait, yeah, that's <laughs> unfair stereotyping. Well, and I, I think that's an interesting point, though, because um, there, often when we're sort of saying that women can't be fans and sort of mocking them for lusting after players, we have no problem with creating these online galleries of, you know, hottest female athletes and hottest female sportscasters. You know, any, you know, broadcast property or or media property has done this thing where they've sort of objectified female athletes for the heterosexual male. So for some reason, we have this double standard that women can't have that that you somehow aren't a for- I mean, I, I'm a fan. I'm going to be completely honest. I'm a fan of um, lusting after athletes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fan of lust in general. But uh, I mean, you know, to it within certain limits. But uh, but yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And and you point out in your piece, but it's actually something that's to my favorite. I'm much more of a hockey fan than I am mm-hmm. a baseball fan. But two of my favorite uh, hockey writers uh, are Ellen Etchingham, yeah, absolutely, and uh, and Katie Baker, uh, who write. Uh, you know, maybe differently, but actually I, I really like the way Ellen writes essays and think pieces about hockey, which is uh, much the way I I think about the game. You, um, you, another thing you touch on in your piece, though, is the, uh, the maybe the lack of, of female sports writers and sports casters or the, you know, the narrow slots they're put into as the, uh, as an obstacle to sort of like... Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that the way we write on sports is very limited anyway. Um, you know, there's a certain kind of person who writes about sports. There's a certain kind of person who talks about sports. 
Um, and the style of writing is very narrow. Um, and I think that, you know, not only if there were more female voices in there, would it sort of alter the perspective of the way we look at the game. And not necessarily because I think men and women are essentially different, but their experiences of it are different, um, just because of the way we're socialized and, and the way we live. Um, and I think that it would actually be really productive for sports writing to open up a little bit and change the way in which we report on the game, the way we talk about the way we experience the game. Well, I'd, I'd say that like the, it seems to me off the top of my head that the two major uh, branches of sports writing or sports journalism are stats geekery mm-hmm. and um, heroic journey narrative. Yeah, right? narrative, narrative. Uh, and I, I feel like you know na- narrative reporting, it tends to be... You know, it tends to be of the literary variety. It tends to be sort of niche a bit. And it would be nice if that, you know, sort of exploded into mainstream media a little more. And what, what kind of... Um, I'm just um, trying to get get a sense of what kind of writing... Like, what, what different ways would you see it being taken? Especially if women were involved, but just in general, like uh, different treatments. What, what, what would they look like? Well, I, I, I mean, I think that... I'm not sure what it would look like. But I, you know, a, a great example of this is when R.A. Dickey came on board. Um, he, he's a very narrative player, um, and he has a you know, history of sexual abuse. And a lot of people who wouldn't otherwise be interested in sports sort of adhered to his story and his narrative. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's great for the sport because people can find in it what, a part that they love. They love this man's you know, comeback, the way he overcame odds. And people are really attracted to that, and it makes good sense to open those kinds of narratives up, um, because the more fans, the better. I'm I, I'm not a bandwagon believer. I think that the more fans we have, the better it is right. um, for everyone. And I think the more you know, more we open up the community and not make it this very limited sort of this is what a fan looks like. Um, it it just it's better for everyone. We can maybe have a more common conversation. Exactly. Thanks, Stacy. No we're problem. out of time, but I thank you for being here, and uh, and I imagine you'll be at the game this weekend. Uh, actually, I'm going to a Yankees game this weekend. So <laughs> okay. this is the part where everybody can shame me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, enjoy being down there. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Okay, so, um, you know, coming up we have our panel of media assassins, but first another uh, public transit song, Tom Waits' Downtown Train. Outside another yellow moon There's ponds to roll in the nighttime I climb to the window and down to the street I'm shining like a new dime Downtown trends of food For those Brooklyn girls They try so hard to break out of their little worlds Well, you wave your hand and they scatter like clothes They have nothing that will ever capture your just thorns without the rules Be careful of them in the dark oh, If I was one You chose to be your only one Oh yeah Can't you hear me now? Can't you hear me now? Well, I see you tonight Hold it down to the train 
Welcome back to the Kina Wire radio program. If you're just joining us and want to get in on the conversation, you can tweet us at Keenan Wire CIUT or tweet me personally at the Keenan Wire. Or you can email your comments to the Keenan Wire CIUT at gmail.com. You know, I like to hear your perspective because it's a big city, too big to be summed up in my opinion, which is why I have my friends come here into the studio with me. I call them the Keenan Wire panel of media assassins. <laughs> With me today, Torontoist reporter and democracy activist, Desmond Cole. Welcome, Desmond. Thanks, Thanks for being here. No, it's a pleasure. And uh, John Michael McGrath, who reports on provincial politics for QP Briefing. Hello, Ed. It's a subscription service? It is a subscription service. QP Briefing is, is the URL or the way to find uh, it? Yeah, qpbriefing.com. Okay. So, um, 
Let's see. Uh, there's a bunch of topics I we I sent you and that we talked about, but obviously there's a royal baby, which means we have to we have to throw <laughs> all hail aside. the new king. And, um, yes, no. Uh, well, it's a boy. no. It's too late for no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, next. Um, okay, so you guys have both been doing some reporting on uh, provincial politics now that there are by-election races going on. Uh, Desmond, you reported on a. a a sort of controversy that's now sort of over, I guess, or it's or the the active portion of it is over uh, in Scarborough Southwest. Scarborough Guildwood. Scar- Scarborough. Scarborough Guildwood, sorry, uh, within the NDP. Yeah, um, there was a nomination uh, to choose the candidate for the NDP for the Scarborough Guildwood by-election, and uh, that nomination featured two people. <coughs> Excuse me. One of those two people was Adam Giambroni, who eventually won. Mm-hmm. Former Toronto City Councillor, of course, TTC Chair. The other was MRG Chabra, a union activist, uh, been around the NDP for quite some time, too. Right. Now, uh, my understanding is that Adam Jambroni was uh, on the search committee for the NDP to find candidates and invited her to run. And then two days before the nomination meeting, let her know that he'd be running against her. That's correct. Yes, that's, right? that's what I heard. That's and what's it, been reported. And it didn't necessarily go smoothly, according to all involved. No, the actual nomination process was uh, found to be in some controversy because uh, the Riding Association and Chabra both put forward complaints after it was over that a dozen people were not registered on any party lists. Now, the candidates get lists before the actual nomination to know who to canvas and how, you know who they need to find for support. Right. Apparently, those lists either were not updated to include the 12 people in question... Or they may actually not have been on any lists at all because they're not members in good standing in Scarborough Guildwood, which you need to be in order to vote. So there's a dozen people who showed up who it's unclear whether they were actually uh, able to vote. That's right. And some member of the party executive uh, personally vouched for them or something like that? (coughs) As I understand it, uh, the secretary of the Ontario New Democrats, Darlene Lawson, uh, was there and said, no, these people are eligible and they should get ballots. And they voted. Uh, The reason that the 12 is so significant is because it represents about a third of the people who voted. There are only 32 people at the nomination meeting. And so having 12 people's eligibility in question is quite serious. And what was Jambroni's margin of victory? Reportedly uh, 18 to 14. I haven't seen that on paper because the party doesn't actually release it to right. you know, publicly. Right, at nomination but meetings too, and I understand that this happened, but I, my experience is that within the NDP traditionally, as soon as somebody wins, the other candidate says, I, I vote we make it to not unanimous, and then they yeah. decide to make it unanimous, and then they destroy all the ballots. So there's which, no evidence. Which, which happened in this yeah. case, but they do tell the candidates what the final vote count is. Okay. And so if we believe... Amarjeet Chabra, the final vote count was 18 to 14. Okay, so I'll just fast forward a bit, and uh, relying on Desmond's reporting on this, actually, a story that I think you you broke or, or certainly moved forward on Torontoist, uh, there was some possibility of, of uh, uh, I'm sorry, the losing candidate. Um, Amarjeet Chabra. A- Amarjeet uh, filing a... Uh, uh, you know, a legal challenge, but uh, that, you know, so the, the, the deadlines were coming up too fast, and so she's put that on the back burner, and I guess this will be something to discuss later, but, um, you know, what what are the big issues here? I mean, I guess one of the big issues, other than the other than the, the sort of the potential legal challenge, is actually this, you know, golden boy superstar, big-footing uh, local yeah. activist candidate. Now, this happens in by-elections a lot, Jim? 
Um, John, cer- John, sorry. <laughs> it's certainly not um, not uncommon. Uh, I mean, frankly, there's be- there were some, uh, let's say, hints that uh, Doug Holliday was, was parachuted into Etobicoke Lakeshore uh, mm-hmm. because... Um, he he made himself available to the Conservative Party when that by-election opened up. Uh, they had already had a candidate named who had been injured in a car accident, something I, I believe it was nine months ago or so. Right. And uh, so all of a sudden, this injury, um, which, you know... Became debilitating. It, exactly. It yeah. became debilitating was was the, the word we got from the Conservatives. So, you know, the, these kinds of things certainly... Uh, do happen um, in Scarborough? It's become a bit uglier than they usually do. You don't. I mean, we haven't seen uh, uh, the the conservatives uh, in this kind of knife fighting mood uh, in Etobicoke Lakeshore, despite getting uh, big footed. Right now, Desmond. I just wanted to add that I think what's difficult about this is you have a lot of unanswered questions that I think could be. If a party had a list showing that those 12 people were actually members of good standing mm-hmm. and produced it immediately, the controversy would disappear. Yeah. It would that, have never happen. That particular controversy, although, I mean, I, I hear a lot of talk, and I think it's not unfounded about privilege, that a downtown wealthy or, you know, or certainly connected mm-hmm. uh, white guy is displacing a woman of color who's a local activist who's done a lot of work in that community. Um, do, do you think that that's a, a big factor here or something that really needs to be talked about? I, I think we have to ask ourselves why Adam Giambroni, first of all, he calls this an administrative issue. This was an election. Right. Why is he dismissing it and saying that it, it's getting in the way of his campaign? Why not address something so serious and where so many people clearly have an interest just to know What's going on? That's where I think the privilege comes in. It's the privilege to say, I don't have to talk about this if I don't want to. And these are legitimate questions that are being asked. And it's going to be up to the NDP within their own internal processes after this is all over to decide what to do about this controversy. Because uh, a lot of people within the party are coming forward after this. On my Facebook page, after I posted this in comments, I've had a lot of people come out and say, you know, I've had this happen to me as well. Right. And not just I've had a weird nomination process, but I felt like people tried to push me aside, and it was often somebody who's not white and often somebody who's not a man saying you this mean over and over and over. Aside. Yeah. The people being pushed aside. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a, there's a history, and I mean, we, we could move on to other topics, but there is a history of, um, you know, certainly Karen Stintz and Shelley Carroll in the last mayoral election both made it uh, clear afterwards yeah. to some extent to another that they felt pushed out, right? That John yeah. Tory was thinking about running, which meant Karen decided she couldn't run. And, uh, and you know, Shelley Carroll was, you know, in the midst of some personal business and whatnot, and, and suddenly the decision was made that it was going to be somebody else and yeah. not her. Um, and in Scarborough, I, I mean, I guess one of the things that I just can't escape is, in my mind is this whole controversy within the NDP is for a seat that there's no evidence that they're going to carry. Uh, I mean, that just the, the race in Scarborough Guildwood is between the liberal and the conservative. And Adam Jambroni, the last poll I saw, I mean, was struggling to stay above 20%. Well, I mean, that's, that, that would be the, the traditional counter argument, 
especially within a party like the NDP, which certainly talks a lot about encouraging diversity, encouraging yeah. female candidates and all of that, is to is that also, though, when push comes to shove, when you got one by-election race, who can you put up that can win? And that may not be a, a actually even applicable question in this, in it, this writing. It, it right? always comes back to this when we talk about diversity, though, doesn't it, Ed? It always comes back to this false choice between a quality candidate and a candidate who is not white, male, middle class. You know, give me a break. It always <laughs> comes back to this, and that's a false choice. And, you know, well, if you don't have those people in your party... You can develop those people. You can give them opportunities. You can put them along that path so that one day they will be the one who is ready instead of the person who's always being ready being the same demographic of person that we have in politics already every single time. Well, and it seems to me that if winnability is your standard, if the candidate mm-hmm. who can win is always going to be your standard, then then the people who with the best chance to win are the people who are already established, right? The people who've won before. Yeah. Pe- yeah. And so... Uh, whatever lens you're looking at it through, whether it's racial equity or gender equity or whatever, uh, class politics, mm-hmm. um, those who have already succeeded the most will always be given the chance to succeed more because they look like they can succeed. And anyway, we're not going to solve all of those <laughs> issues today. Uh, but, uh, you know, speaking of, um, you know, issues that are difficult to solve, Detroit. Uh, declared bankruptcy. This is a fate long foretold for Toronto by yes. uh, our former budget chief and the uh, the editorial economist at the Toronto Sun. Uh, <laughs> how are Toronto and Detroit different? Uh, let us count the ways, John. Well, I, uh, the first thing is that under provincial law, it's impossible to imagine a city actually declaring bankruptcy in Ontario. It's simply not legally this is, they cannot run an operating deficit. They, right? they cannot op- run an operating deficit at all. The only debt they can go into is for long-term capital projects. So it's it's uh, and the other important thing is that uh, municipal uh, employees have a, a pooled pension across the province. So one of the biggest liabilities for Detroit has been the city's own pension plan. Uh, the Toronto shares its pension costs with a number of other municipalities, and so that that risk is leveled out. Um, but uh, you know this this story is uh, I mean so glorious only because it automatically confirms whatever your preconceived political ideology <laughs> was going into it, exactly. right? So if you think that the the story of Detroit is uh, rapacious capitalism abandoning communities uh, that depend on it, well, Detroit absolutely fits your narrative. If you think it's about, uh, you know, big city Democrats and lazy unions, uh, you know, destroying free enterprise, well, there's a, a hole for you to fill Hold there, on, too. Hold on, I got one, too. It's a city that was based on the car industry <laughs> and that didn't have a public transit system, a good public transit system. Hey! War, 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 too, war right? on the car. War on the car, Ed. What, what you How have? dare you? Um, I was in Detroit. I've been in Detroit a couple times in the last couple of years, and... If you go to Detroit, bring a bicycle because they have, speaking of roads and roadways and cars, these huge six and eight lane roads down the middle of Detroit that no one is driving on anymore. And you can ride a bike quite safely and see a lot of the city. Downtown Detroit, I remember the last time I was there seeing um, an ad on a building about 20 stories tall and the ad was draped down the windows on the side of the building because the building was abandoned it's just being used as a huge billboard for a commercial product that I will not name Um, (laughs) it blew my mind and yet that night I went to a brilliant jazz concert in downtown Detroit 
Later on, I went to the best house music show I've ever been to in my life in Detroit. And then at the end of the night, everybody just leaves the city. Um, we were walking around the downtown square in Detroit at four in the evening, and there's no one there. 4 p.m. Yep. Yeah, wow. There's a New York, a former New York Times reporter uh, whose name eludes me at the moment, but uh, he's done some great reporting from uh, Detroit. And one of the things he did as a stunt was he played, uh, I think it was uh, nine holes of golf through downtown Detroit uh, in the middle of the day and never had to get out of the way for a car or anything like that. Wow. So, well, there's a possible future, a source of revenue, like urban <laughs> golfing. I will say the artists are definitely doing their thing in Detroit. There's some unbelievable art projects and restoration projects going on as well, which makes it in itself worth the trip. Okay, very quickly, there was a statue of Ted Rogers unveiled outside the <laughs> building. Everybody still calls Skydome yesterday. Um, I think Ted Rogers is probably a guy worth memorializing. He did a lot of work, but maybe outside the Rogers uh, headquarters up at Mount Clinton, you know, Jarvis and Bluer might have been a better place. Yeah, I would also accept uh, on Ryerson campus where right. he's given a ton of money. What, what would you put outside the Skydome if you were building a statue there? Um Roberto Alomar stretched out diving for a ball saying catch the taste that's <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say Joe Carter just a, I suppose it's a bit of yeah. a cliche but you gotta Joe Carter was... in mid-swing hitting a walk-off home run to end a World Series would exactly be, would be certainly my choice yeah um, remember when we did that two years in a row and how stuck up we were just rubbing <laughs> it in the American space whatever happened to yeah. that again <laughs> and, then, and you know Doug Gilmore and Wendell Clark were playing for the Maple <laughs> Leafs and I thought Toronto's sports dominance was just on the on the rise uh, <laughs> at least we can say we were there but it's like a, it was, it's a Detroit-like, uh, you know, Detroit administrative-like uh, Toronto sports culture now. It's just it? a <laughs> smoking crater. <laughs> All right, we got to take a break. So, um, you know, while we're on uh, the traveling transit music kick today, I thought I'd play the entirety of my Media Assassin's theme song, which is maybe the uh, platonic ideal of a garage rock, garage rock song. Here's the Sonics. <laughs>
All right. Have love. We'll travel. And uh, our next guest, if he's traveling, is often traveling on foot. He talks the walk quite a bit. He's a pedestrian activist, the co-founder of Walk Toronto, as well as an editor of Spacing Magazine, Dylan Reed. Thanks for joining me here in the studio. Pleasure. So we got a, a couple issues that I thought might be up your alley, and the first one, which I really find interesting, is what they're doing on Church Street in parking spaces of all places. Yeah, it's fantastic. And and what is that that they're doing? There? Well, what they're doing is they're uh, they're temporarily um, basically building uh, parklets, what they call parklets in parking spaces, right? Uh, which is kind of a pun because it's a parking space, but it's being turned into a park. Uh, so what they're doing is they take the parking, one or two parking spaces, and some of them are becoming patios for the nearby bar or c- cafe. Some of them are becoming little parks with maybe a little chair, a bit of plants, a place you can relax. Right. This seems similar to, in some ways, to what they were did on uh, Young Street last year, where they, they extended the sidewalk out into the street. Uh, a little bit. But the difference is that there they actually took a lane of traffic out, because there's no parking in uh, mm-hmm. Young, I don't think. Right. Um, but uh, this is actually just parking spaces. So it doesn't actually affect traffic at all. Right. Um, uh, and it's, uh, I mean, it's genius really because it's small. It doesn't actually make a big difference in terms of, you know, the amount of parking available or anything like that, but it makes a huge difference to the street. It just gives it an extra, yeah. extra If you're walking down or, the street, yeah. uh, you, you encounter a huge difference in your experience. I exactly. Guess. Exactly. And, uh, it really, um, I mean, you know, it's a place like Church Street. The sidewalks are pretty narrow. It's a super busy area. It's really vibrant. The sidewalks are narrow, and there's not a lot. Of, and they're not that interesting. They're narrow. There's not a lot of trees. Not a lot of, you add this kind of thing, suddenly that becomes a real social space. Is this the kind of thing that you can see being applicable to other areas of the oh, city? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, what, um, what were your top, you know, places that that could be improved that way by? Um, well, I, I guess in Toronto there's a bit of a complication because a lot of our streets they use the parking for rush hour traffic. So uh, the nice thing about Church Street is the parking's permanent. So that it's no parking during so there's rush hour. no parking. Hour so you can't really do this kind of thing uh, right. because you uh, – but anywhere where the parking is permanent and Church is one of those places, it's a great opportunity. We could check into the legality of this. I assume it's illegal, but, I mean, could you just put some money in the meter and take up a parking space? Well, with people have been doing that for stuff? a while, yeah. like that kind of gorilla parklets yeah. for a long time. And as far as I know, it's actually legal. Like, if you have that space, you can do what you want with it. You just can't put anything permanent there. Right? What about uh, in, the, in the inner suburbs in particular, yeah. the, less, the least walkable yeah. parts of the city, uh, you know, there's giant streets. Strip malls. Is it possible to turn some of those epic parking lots along Lawrence, say, or Shepherd into into temporary parks or even? I think that would be a parks? fantastic idea. Yeah. Um, the thing is that you don't have as much uh, necessarily as much pedestrian volume, so that would be the issue. But there actually is quite a lot. Like there's a lot of people taking transit, a lot of people who actually walk to those malls, who are who have parked and are walking around those malls. So yeah, that would be a great idea. And actually, I was at Taste of the Lawrence recently, and a couple of uh, restaurants had done that. They'd taken over a huge chunk of the parking of their parking lot and turned it into a huge patio uh, for Taste of the Lawrence. It worked really well, and it gave a really great vibe. To the space. And maybe if there was, I mean, I haven't seen the research on it, and presumably some research has mm. been conducted, but it just seems to me that, like in those places where there's not as much pedestrian activity, uh, you might encourage more if you made exactly. it Exactly, yeah. yeah. And I think another thing I want to talk about in the church thing is, uh, what we're thinking about is, is this idea of flexible streets. So, and this is actually happening a couple other ways in Toronto as well. Um, Toronto streets are pretty narrow, a lot of them, and there's a lot of people want to use them, and this is a really great way, like, you know, 
in the winter, you probably, people aren't going to be sitting out in the patios. You don't need this kind of space as much. In the summer, you want this space. People are out. They're about. They're walking on the street. They want to sit in the patios. They want to be able to, like, walk around and relax. And there's no, not enough space for benches on, on uh, church. So it's a really great idea of, like, thinking of our streets as flexible spaces. Like, a, it doesn't have to be a specific use the whole year. It can be uh, pedestrian use during the summer. In the winter, when that's not needed, it can go back to cars or whatever. Like, I think we really need to think in Toronto in terms of these flexible streets because those streets are narrow and those, a, lot of, a lot of people want to use them. And we have to think about, you know, it's a great example of thinking about how do we change the way the street is used for different times of the year and different needs. I heard this great suggestion from somebody in a position of power recently to uh, pedestrianize a section of King Street, and then that seemed to disappear almost overnight. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually been in the works for a long time. Uh, and the idea would be there'd be like alternating uh, pedestrian areas and stuff like that. But, you know, the demands on King Street are huge. Um, but again, if you start thinking flexible terms, then there's a lot more things you can do. And we do that a little bit with like street closures during the weekend for uh, festivals and stuff like that. Right. I think we really need to think of that as something that we want to do all summer all over the city is like think those terms of flexibility. The streets can be used for different purposes. Yeah, like the flexible city. Exactly. You know, it could turn into a big street party during the summer. Exactly. Um, uh, you know, uh, one issue that uh, was really big in sort of pedestrianism as it is uh, a couple of years ago was the introduction of uh, pedestrian scrambles at a yeah. few major intersections where, uh, you know, the, the one, one light goes and cars and pedestrians go east-west. One light goes and the, they go north-south. And then one light goes and all the cars stop and anybody can run in anywhere yeah. or dance in the it's middle of the street. It's incredibly popular. Um, now, they're talking about removing one of those, the one at Bay and Bloor. Is that, in your sense, I think there's a city staff report recommending yeah. that. Is that a... a a good idea, a bad idea. What's the uh, well? So, the background to this is that there was there was always going to be a study of the three scrambles, and this is part of that study. Um, and I think if we saw the full study and we saw that they had criteria and it showed that that one wasn't working then I'm okay with taking it out because I think it's really important to really put these kinds of things in where they're actually used. Um, right, you, so you I know. mean, the, the argument but, being but, put forward is that, is that uh, it's not getting well used. Yeah, but I uh, think what we need to do is we need to see that. Like, I think people are worried that this is just a step towards eliminating all of them. Mm -hmm. and so I think what we need to see, and the city has not released the full staff report because the young Dundas thing is also part of the traffic study, downtown traffic study. But I think what we need to do is see that full report, look at all the criteria, and then we can decide, okay, I see what you're talking about. And also, if we get those criteria, we can also start seeing where there's other places that would work, right? I think that's right. what we would need to see. I think we can we can deal with losing that scramble if it's not working, if they can show that it's not working compared to the other ones. But as long as we can also see that there's also the criteria where we could put more in. Is, where they is are one of the work. biggest criteria just the level of pedestrian traffic? Which is, I mean, at Young and Dundas, yeah. it's just that the streets oh, are yeah, already overflowing with people. Exactly. And so, yeah, so there's criteria are like, uh, the amount of traffic, the amount of people who use the uh, diagonal crossing, right? right? And then also like things like crowding. So if people are spilling out over the sidewalk and stuff like that. So those are, I think, some of the key criteria. Also, the amount of traffic delay. Are they extreme or are they reasonable? And at, like Young and Dundas and Young and Boer, they're pretty. They're not that bad. The traffic delays. I think. I believe that the uh, Bay and Boer one is more severe. So I think that might be an effect as well. 
All right. Now, is there any chance we're going to see those numbers at Van Buren? Is it sell if it's just a uh, well, That's what I really want to see. Okay. That's what I want to see. Well, maybe, maybe when we see you, I'll, I'll talk to you again, and we'll see how that worked out. Okay. But thanks for joining me today. Great. I'd like to thank Dylan for being with me, as well as Stacey May Fowles, who joined me on the phone earlier, and, of course, Desmond and John on the Media Assassin panel. This show was produced by Brian Goman, and thanks to him and to board tech Nick Paquette. A podcast of this program will be available soon at thegridto.com, or you can subscribe through iTunes. You can follow us at Keenan at Keenan Wire CIUT and send us your suggestions and comments to the Keenan Wire CIUT at gmail.com. Of course, if you can't wait until next week to get more of me, you can follow me personally at The Keenan Wire on Twitter. My writing appears weekly in The Grid magazine and through the week at thegridto.com. And you can buy my book, Some Great Idea, Good Neighborhoods, Crazy Politics, and the Invention of Toronto in finer bookstores everywhere. That's The Keenan Wire radio program for this week. Thanks for spending the morning with us, Toronto. We'll talk to you next Wednesday at 9 here on CIUT 89.5 FM. Guess what? CIUT now offers the most affordable advertising rates for any small business. Exclusive show sponsorships are available for as low as $30. Call us at 416-978-0909, extension 206. Or visit us at CIUT.fm to find out more information on all the promotional opportunities CIUT 89.5 FM has to offer. The evolution continues. CIUT 89.5, Toronto.